is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again, one and all. Welcome to Enter Sad Men. Good to have your company for the latest episode um, on this odyssey of ours to create the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. Every album you should own, and by definition, inevitably, a fair few you definitely shouldn't, um, between the years 1970 and 1995. Those are our parameters. We review them, we rate them, we rank them. My name's Steve, Mark and Richard are with me as always, and we have three more albums, an album each from the three of us, to place under the microscope in this show. And as this is episode 67, um, and since we always do three albums per show, even a man with a D in O-level maths can figure out that we're going to burst through the 200 album barrier this time round. I reckon that's a decent milestone. We started doing this thing about ooh, 18 months ago. Um, we're certainly not stopping yet. So, uh, yeah, 200 albums. I, this is this is good going. Um, and you can find out all about the albums we've done and everything we've done so far on the website, www.entersadmen.co.uk. Um, yeah, so episode at 67. Well, regular listeners um, will know that we always rather childishly choose a theme for our shows. And even more childishly, the themes are selected by our imaginary Tombola, um, named after Tico Torres. And last time, Tico decided that we would be doing This Was My Life, which sounds like a pretty big subject, Mark, if I'm honest. What was on your radar when This Was My Life came up? How are you, by the way? I'm good. I'm very good. Um, all the better for being here. Um, we sort of decided, well, that's any kind of life event, didn't we? And um, so what was on my radar? Well... I tried to avoid everything with life in the title. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was thinking, well, it's, it's school. That's that's kind of going out to work, do that. Death, death is part of life, isn't it? Um, but in the end, I thought, you know what? Parenthood, that's a big life event. So becoming a, well, in my case, a father, but also a mother. And so I went for um, an album that I didn't really know very well. Um, well, in fact, I didn't know it at all, apart from the first track on the album. And um, I kind of surprised myself and realised that I wandered into a hornet's nest that I probably wouldn't have wandered into <laughs> had I known now then <laughs> what I know now. But, but I'm glad I did. Yeah. I Mother Love Bones Apple from 1990. Oh, I nearly fell off my chair. I fell off my fucking chair, mate, when I, uh, <laughs> when, when I heard that and thought, has he, has he, has he? Um, but we'll, we'll come to it because it's, it's if, if anyone, if people who don't know it and think they know it, whoa, yeah, no, very different to what it says on the tin. Trust me. Um, Richard, you're right, yeah, very good, thank you, very good, excellent. How was your life? Yes, well, so, same things, yeah, birth, death, marriage. I mean, it, almost this was the opposite end of the spectrum that it. That I think it was a bit too unconstrained. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, well, I cut to the chase. I, I, in the end, I went for holidays, um, uh, an important part of my life, and um, uh, an album, a second uh, featured album by Marillion, but a different type of Marillion to the previous time. Uh, it's uh, their album, Holidays in Eden. Very good. Yeah, me, well, I, I gave it far less thought than you two, as ever. I went for babies, and um, and I, I threw a swerve ball and went for Billion Dollar Babies by Alice Cooper. So listen, let's have a, let's have a listen to um, to some of the tracks from these three albums, and then uh, we'll come back in a bit and we'll, we'll gas we'll gas about all three. Militant mothers hiding in the basement. 
Right, so there you go. I hope you enjoyed those few snippets. As usual on these podcasts, we do everything in chronological order of release. And that means we start in the 70s with Steve and Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, 1973. The godfather of shock rock, as he was known. And maybe back in the 60s and early 70s, it seemed quite outrageous, but it all looks a bit lame now, doesn't it? A bit tame. Um, it's interesting, Mark, you did, you did ask on WhatsApp, didn't you, with, with what I sense was genuine curiosity why I chose it. And um, I, I, I did know it. I mean, but it was a kind of chuck it in the mix selection, a bit like your meatloaf, say, who we did a few weeks ago, in as much as I thought he's an artist that I think our Hall of Fame should have in. Um, I don't think we need to labour the point. I think one appearance is fine. But it's it's the it's the one album I knew um, before. It was also one of the albums that um, was part of my um, famous trade at the Notting Hill Tape and Record Exchange or Record and Tape Exchange, where I wound up with Too Fast for Love. So I'm quite happy with with getting shot of it. Um, wasn't sorry to see the back of it in that in that context. So it means I've gone back to this years on and, and realised fairly quickly actually that I hadn't missed that much it's it's an album that interest i think it promises in the first two tracks certainly to be very decent ultimately does drop away but it's such a mixed bag like you mark i was never really bothered about the whole alice cooper cabaret bollocks um and at, at this stage lest anyone forget in, in 1973 alice cooper was the name of the band only and not the man himself he was still humble old vincent fernier um he, d- he didn't legally adopt the name for another couple of years. So so Alice Cooper, the band, were to all intents and purposes always the man, um, but literally they weren't at this stage. Anyway, all that notwithstanding, we're obviously reviewing the music, and, yeah, this was a major deal at the time. It was a sixth and penultimate Alice album, always going to succeed on the back of the album before it, which was School's Out and the, um, the giant single off it, which is only number one hit. Um, the title track off that one. Um, but yeah, as I say, I, I just find this all a bit hit and miss. I mean, the hits are good, the misses are shite, um, but there's, I think that's almost inevitable. So you've got this line in the sand between aren't I weird and scary and dangerous and theatrical and aren't we a great band? And there's almost an identity issue here where, where Cooper's ham acting and ham singing, come to that, if that is a phrase, um, detracts from the music in some instances. Um, that's what I found anyway. And the sadness of it is that the Cooper had such a great band behind him, um, although it appeared to be falling apart at this stage. Guitarist Glenn Buxton um, hardly appears on here at all because he'd almost drunk himself to death. Um, his pancreas was absolutely fucked. So he sort of, Cooper roped in a few other guitarists um, to, to fill in the missing bits. But I, I've, I've loved listening to some of those guitarists. I've adored listening to Dennis Dunaway on bass. What a bass player he is. Um but it's just kind of all slightly um, overshadowed by this, you know, presidential front man who, who simply has to be the star of the show. Um, and in talent terms, he isn't. Um, but, you know, fuck it. He's carved out a lucrative enough career out of this shit. So, so what do I know? Billion Dollar Babies, 25th of February 1973, recorded in about four or five months before that. Warner Brothers. 
shade under 41 minutes. The producer was Bob Ezrin, who Cooper always claimed was um, their George Martin, and they've been lifelong friends ever since. Studios, there were three of them, one of which was called Alice Cooper Mansion. It was dubbed Alice Cooper Mansion. It was the Gillespie Estate in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, previous albums, as I say, were Schools Out. The one after it was their final album, Muscle of Love, in 73. And, yeah, the, the, the definite personnel, Cooper on vocals, Bruce on uh, Michael Bruce on rhythm and guitar, Dunaway bass, uh, Neil Smith drums and percussion. Then guitarist Glenn Buxton was the name on the tin, um, but replacing him on one of the tracks was Steve Hunter, Mick Mashbeer, Dick Wagner, but not Mark Boland, despite the fact that he claims he was. Um, he wasn't. Charted, reached number one over here, reached number one over there. There are ten tracks, two or three massive numbers that everyone will know, and I found it a really, really interesting experience. Real highs, real lows, and I, and I kind of figured when they're good, they're very good. When they're not good, it's pretty shit. Discuss. Cooper is he in the meatloaf camp or is he in the spinal tap camp <laughs> because this album I mean they were making fun of themselves and the whole situation and I think what I've realized was putting one's tongue firmly in one's cheek as you listen to it actually it's very very clever Mm-hmm. Um, musically, I mean, I found it over th- this listening period. Some have really grown on me. As you say, it's it's got some big highs, big lows. Production-wise, yeah, I, I think Ezra was a genius. I think everything that he brought to this, in terms of the extra layers and the extra instruments and, and the arrangements, yeah, he, he absolutely was the extra member uh, as as far as uh, this 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 um, this album goes. Um, I really, really enjoyed listening to it. I think, thank you for suggesting it. It's going to be a really interesting discussion, I think. Mark? Um, I, I don't get Alice Cooper. Never got Alice Cooper. Don't understand. You know, I don't even pretend to understand it. I was eight years old in 1973 when this came out. Maybe I'm not supposed to understand it. Um, I do know that I have steadfastly hated the big hits elected 
scores out. I wasn't really familiar with, oddly enough, Billion Dollar Babies, the track. Of the of the big ones that he's done, one of which is on this, if I had to take one to a desert island, it would probably have been no more Mr. Nice Guy. But the others I can take or leave. You talked about Cabaret. For me, he's just a pantomime dame and not a very <laughs> good one at that. But, 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 but. Um, oh, and you also said you described him as being presidential, which I don't know whether that was just, whether that was a nod to his 13 attempts to become uh, president of the United States or <laughs> or whether it was just coincidence. But, I mean, there is something about him that, forget the rest of the band, they're, they're, they're very good musicians. But this is all, this is the Alice or Vincent Fernier show, isn't it? And there is something about him that is absolutely compelling. Mm. Um, I wanted so much to hate this album i really did but even the shit bits and there are shit bits on it but i've really enjoyed it the only thing that i can think of is there was so there must have been so little going on musically in 1973 for this to hit the top of both the us charts and the uk charts. Look, look, i mean so albums from 1973 we have reviewed so far on the pod Pronounced Leonard Skinner, The Dark Side of the Moon, Queen's debut album, Tres Hombres, Budgie's Never Turn Your Back on a Friend, and Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Okay, so there's quite a lot going on musically. <laughs> <laughs> so why did... So that begs an even bigger question, doesn't it? Yeah. Why did this go to number one? And I don't think any of the... Apart from Dark Side of the Moon, I don't think any of those others did, did they? I don't know. You'll correct me. Somebody it's... correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, so 10 tracks on Billion Dollar Babies. Um, side one, Raped and Freeze and Elected Billion Dollar Babies, an unfinished suite. And it starts, and it starts really, really well with a song called Hello Hooray. And they start with a cover. But this this is no ordinary cover. It's, 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 it's a proper cover in as much as it's a brilliant, brilliant version of a song that was um, written by a guy called Rolf Kempf. Um, for a lady called Judy Collins of Sending the Clowns fame. Um, that was in 1968. Cooper took it on. And it's a real curious cover, but it, the lyrics play to Cooper the Ringmaster. You know, maybe that's what he saw in the original, because it certainly didn't sound like this. He wouldn't have seen the tune. Um, but apparently he and Ezrin wanted it to sound like Alice does cabaret the show. So you've got this kind of slow number start. Um, with, it sounds more like an overture. It, maybe that's why it would make sense as an opener. Quite a theatrical number, quite dark in places. Cooper loved the grandness of what they did to this song. Um, reached number six in the UK charts almost preposterously because it is quite niche. But you cannot criticise them for kicking off the album with someone else's work because they have Cooperfied it. That's his phrase, by the way, not mine. And I like it. It's a very understated start, isn't it? Mm. Um but then it, it, it does pick up a lot. Um, yeah, I like the build of the chorus melody. Analyzing this, you know, this this is quite dark rock, isn't yeah. it? In terms of Bob Esrin, again, this this one's got him in spades. It was a really complex, wonderfully arranged middle section, um, and then it sort of climbs and climbs and climbs uh, towards the end, and justifiably fades out. This is the kind of song that should <laughs> fade out. Yeah, it's, it's a good opener. Good it opener. is a good. Too many tambourines in it for me, but other than that, um, Mark. Well, Ezrin, dear God, I mean, he pumped this album full of all sorts of dis different instruments, didn't he? There's so much instrumentation. There's a whole fucking horn section in one song. I mean, I, I think the title track 
And um, yeah, I like this. I, I didn't like it the first time I heard it. I didn't like okay. it the second time I heard it. It has grown on me okay. over the week. I think it's, and I, they have Cooperfied it, haven't they? It, yeah. it is very much about him and it's yeah. done in that style. And and I think it, it sets out their stall for this very theatrical, almost orchestral. It's almost like a Broadway show. Isn't yeah. it? It's the opening yeah. of a Broadway show. It is, yeah. And and the irony being, well, maybe not an irony, but the interesting fact being that it then goes into a song that it shouldn't ordinarily go into, it shouldn't automatically drop into, which is Raped and Freezing, or Mustang Sally, as it threatens to be from the off. Um, it's a fascinating sort of juxtaposition from that to this, because this is, I love this number, I absolutely love it. It's a little bit southern, a little bit rocky, a little bit 60s. Love the guitar lines in it and the subsequent piano lines into the pre-chorus in which I thought he was singing, hey, I think I've got an iPhone, but clearly he isn't. Odd bit of random calypso to go out, but there's quite an awful lot of odd random things going on on this whole album. So I, I like I like Raped and Freezing, you know, odd song yeah. title, but I suppose you get away with it in 73. The lyrics are brilliant <laughs> about him being uh, seduced and, and jumped on. Um, you know, no time to get dressed, so I was naked, stranded in Chihuahua. <laughs> that's some lovely I, imagine this song done by Blue Oyster Cult it's almost got that bizarre quality about it mm -hmm. um, I personally quite like the cha-cha-cha ending yeah, um, it's almost Paul Simon you're absolutely right about the bass, bass playing the bass line on this song is fantastic yeah and it's and it's a trend that carries on. I think I think Dunaway is a sensational bass player. And we're, you know, we're here on the next track, Elected, um, released just before the 1972 US election, um, and a reworking of their very psychedelic Reflected, which was on their debut album back in '69. Anyway, it has to be one of his best-known songs. It's a proper grandstanding piece of mischief that charted very well, um, and has become one of those songs that he will just keep earning royalties for because of the song title. It just begs to be played ahead of of, um, of any election. John Lennon apparently liked it. They met at the studio. Um, a little bit of name dropping from Alice. I don't like it, um, though it's still better than the Mr Bean cover. Um, it's not a bad song. It just, just, just. It, it's very close to irritating. Um, what I would say is, again, listen to Dunaway's bass line through it. He makes this thing roll. He really does. But it's a shit song, other than that. I quite like the the middle bit of it, but it's the rest of it around it that I can't I just I can't bear. I I really like the bridge through the chorus, but yeah, no, for me, I, I just I don't like this track. <laughs> really, I've, I I never have. I think the reason that this was so popular is that it really spoke to the younger generation of America at the time. It was quite disillusioned. You know, talk about Vietnam, aren't we? we? Were kind of in the arse end of that, and. Yeah, interesting. Interesting that Cooper himself has always said that he's not politically, you know, mm. he isn't politicized. Um, and yet he's run for president 13 times. <laughs> Is that just kind of satire? I don't know. Um, but it was it was an anthem for a disillusioned nation, wasn't it, really? I suppose. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the most famous songs, um, but on the album, it's fairly straight ahead. Um, the lyrics are very clever. You know, they're, they're cynical, they're cutting. I like the brass section. That's grown on me. Uh, but other than that, it uh, doesn't do much for me either. So if Elected was, well, in my eyes, close to a, the first misstep on the album, not quite, but um, then there's no mistaking that the title track is a genuine trip, um, a proper no-mistake 
fuck up as far as I'm concerned. Starts off well enough, sort of drum beat into a catchy guitar hook. Dunaway chimes up, cool. Riff starts, it's okay. A little bit 60s, that's fine. Cooper starts singing, again, fine. But fuck me. Then it just turns into this horrible duet between Cooper and Donovan. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm just... I'm just Fucking, I mean, whenever the two of them shut up and the band do their stuff, they do it really well. It's not a bad tune, but it's just wrecked by that vocal interplay. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I think this is Rocky Horror before Rocky Horror. Um, I'm presuming from reading the lyrics, it's about a uh, the kind of doll you purchase from a yes. shop for over 18s or 21s. I, I think the production is amazing. The arrangements are amazing. I, I think I think this is one of the Steve Hunter solos. Yeah. Uh, which was very, very good. It's got, a, I think, a really interesting groove. And again, to start with, didn't like this at all. But as I stuck my tongue in my cheek <laughs> and started to appreciate the fact that they weren't taking themselves seriously on this album, uh, I ended up liking this. Mm. I really like this. I think this is an, an absolutely genius piece of work. Guitars on it are d to die for. I mean, there's some amazing guitar work on this. Um, have you seen, there are loads of YouTube videos of him doing this live. There's one that I was watching last night and um, it is the most awkward performance I think I've ever seen on a stage by a man who at that time was probably coming into his sort of 1980s commercial heyday. Honestly, it, the, the whole kind of props thing going on um, with the baby, that uh, just bizarre, mm. absolutely bizarre. Um, but this is an absolutely monster song. And like you, Richard, I struggled with this track first couple of times. But over the, over the two weeks, this has really, really grown on me. I love it. I think it's really clever. I'm still struggling with it. I really am. I've not got there at all. Um, anyway, I'm now in a really feisty mood, having been left completely underwhelmed by both Elected and uh, the title track. So supposedly two of his bigger numbers. And there's still no more Mr. Nice Guy to come, for fuck's sake. So I'm not a happy bunny going into Unfinished Suite. Had nothing to worry about. Had nothing to worry about at all. I like this. I love it. I think the subject matter is utter shite. A trip to a dentist. And because Cooper does do theatre, there's loads of OTT stuff in amongst the Who riffs. Um, one sort of dentist drill bit in particular that's not an easy listen. There's an extraction of some sort going on. Again, mm, it's a bit near the knuckle, but that don't last long. Unlike the track, which is six minutes plus, the Who riffs are great. The groove is excellent. There's a weird kind of Bond gallop chucked in there. It's so chaotic. Um, but the, brand, the band bring it out of that Bond bit superbly through to the line. This is really good. I really, really like this song. Well, I'm with you. I think it's really, really good. Really good song. I love the riff on it. I don't like the the, the drill takes me to a nasty place. Yes. So I'm not a big fan of that. But I think the, the track is great. I think it's a really good side closer as well. Hmm. No, it doesn't do much for me, this one. No, we'll see how to shock with this. I quite like the little yeah, 60s car chase bit in the middle of it. Um, I was thinking when I when I f listened to the first part of this, particularly how much was Spinal Tap influenced by some of these songs. But um, no, it left me a bit cold. This track, I'm afraid. Okay, just close outside one, and um, 
side two opens up. Well, we go from the Who's to the Rolling Stones with no more Mr. Nice Guy. Fairly decent, if innocuous riff. Shit chorus. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. No more Mr. Nice Guy. This is every bit as irritating as the title track in my in my eyes. I've never, never warmed to this. Never, ever warmed to this. And I've heard this a lot more than anything else from this album. You guys? Apparently about outrage over his on-stage antics, wasn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, and it's funny, isn't it, with this and Elected being the, I guess, the two tracks off of this album most people would know. Uh, they're two of the weaker ones mm. uh, for me. It does seem it seems thin, doesn't it, in, in, yeah. in comparison? There's so much depth and breadth to the rest of the stuff. It's, it's quite thin, yeah. Mark? Nothing more to add, really. I, I've, it's another one of his big hits that I don't much like. Yeah. Massive Stones thing, as you say. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, huge. But, you know, praise the Lord, Generation Landslide, track of the album, come on down, totally out of left field. Um, never saw this coming when I first played the album years ago. And love it. Cooper doing his best kind of Mustaine here. It's, it's, there's a great, cool, southern rock kind of hook running through this. The man himself's on harmonica. I think guitarist Michael Bruce wrote most of Cooper's music, I think, and he didn't write anything better than this, I don't think. Um, it was the last song they wrote for this album, funny enough. And uh, drummer Neil Smith said they went down to the Canaries, hired the floor of a hotel, and it just came along. Um, and he said, usually last songs um, can be underwhelming, but can be filler, I think he said. But I think this was an incredible song. I love it. This is, as I say, my track of the album. Yeah, ditto. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. That's a bluesy skiffle shuffle to it. Um, it's got a lovely groove. The la da 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 adds yeah. to it. Uh, the harmonica solo weirdly just works as well. <laughs> I mean, and it's quite a long one. Um, yeah, I love the break in the middle. Um, I think it's another Hunter solo, isn't it, on this one? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no wonder it's a fan favourite. Yeah, it's, it's great. Really, really good song. Yeah, and the point at which I'm saying I quite like the harmonica solo is the point at which you've got quite a good song in your hands because, generally speaking, I fucking hate harmonica solos. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I, as you say, Steve, track of the album, without a doubt. Yeah, but the point about any Alice Cooper album, certainly this one, is sublime follows ridiculous, ridiculous follows sublime. Um, and we've got Sick Things next, which is, well, the part is over. We're now at this point for me where this album just descends rapidly into something I don't get, don't want to get, have no appetite for, keep listening to this stuff, still don't get it. Three tracks for me, Sick Things, Mary Ann, I Love the Dead, just sum up why this man is such a Marmite figure. Track eight, as I say, Sick Things, I'm led to believe, similar to a piece of music from the film, If, one of those shite art house English films of the late 60s, which was bound to star Malcolm McDowell and some other posh boys. It's basically a cocktail of sounds and themes and is awful. It's just awful. And this is not Billion Dollar Babies before any of you two start fucking telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I don't hate it. As, I, I don't hate it. I, I don't feel as aggrieved about it as you do. Um, I think it's quite, I just think it's quite an interesting listen. Yeah, is it going to score highly? Probably not. But I do find it quite... It's strangely hypnotic, I think, and I've uh, I, I don't actually mind listening to it. Yeah, I've found it sort of curious. I've been we curious don't we don't it. listen we don't listen, Mark, to hard rock and heavy metal for strange hypnotism, do we? Surely, I mean, 
<laughs> no, which is why it's not going to score particularly highly. But but yeah, I don't I don't feel I don't feel like I need to go and smash it round the face like yeah. you do. <laughs> So it's dark. It's theatrical. Um, there's some masterful arranging from Ezra and again, but it's not a great song. Thank you. Nor's Marianne, which is next. Reputedly written about moral crusader Mary Whitehouse, according to Cooper. Though Bruce said it was actually written as an anti-Vietnam song originally, which was fit. Vietnam, Marianne. Yeah, whatever it is, it's filler. You could argue it's daft enough to sit on this album. You know, it doesn't look out of place necessarily. You know, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a kind of ragtime piano thing. It's short, two minutes long. As I say, I don't, I don't have any interest in it. I don't hate it. I, I, I can't. <laughs> it just leaves me cold. <laughs> Stop talking, man. <laughs> Do you know what? I quite like this. <laughs> oh, God, is it strangely hypnotic? No, it's oh, not strangely hypnotic. I just, I'm, I quite like Bugsy Malone, and this is this is Bugsy Malone. <laughs> yeah, so go and listen to Bugsy Malone then. <laughs> yeah. But as you say, yeah, <laughs> being slightly serious, because the whole album's mad. This doesn't feel like it's out of place. I make that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah not a surprise. But it's yeah, performance over substance as a song, isn't it? Really. Yeah. And keeping that theme alive brings us to "I Love the Dead," which is just a big theatrical wank fest. I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, conjured up by Cooper and Bob Ezrin, though Dick Vag Wagner, who played the guitar solo in this, apparently. The song's one redeeming feature, I have to say. Um, he, he says he had a hand in the writing, but sold his copyright because he needed the cash, so you won't see his name on the, um, on the on that and several tracks. Anyway, I love the dead is shit, and I'm not going to say any more. No, we, we are agreed. <laughs> Rich is going to say he likes it. No. <laughs> I don't, it, it's okay. It's a fun theatrical ending. No wonder Cooper referenced Mary Whitehouse. I don't think it was unless Mary Ann was written about her, but I mean, she did try and ban him, didn't she, on the yeah. basis of this song, I think. Um, and it's uh, subject matter. Yeah, I mean, it's just, well, for its time, it's proper, proper shock stuff, isn't it? Now you just think, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. We've heard Wasp. Exactly. I, I just find the album just sort of tapers away a little bit. It just becomes more, more theatre than music. Yes, yeah, no, yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. That's a shame. The album starts all right. Anyway, come on, let's have some highs and lows then. Well, title track um, for me, between that and Generation Landslide, um, I'd go for Generation Landslide, I think, was the the, uh, the high. But it's. But I, I think it's pushed closely by the title track. In terms of lows, I think I love The Dead in the end. Yeah, one of the last three. I'll choose Marianne. I think as the as the low. Yeah, any of the last three could have had it. And uh, Generation Landslide, absolutely best track. Yeah, that completes the hat trick for Generation Landslide. And my weak point is um, Sick Things. I could have chosen any of the last three, but Sick Things. Um, there you have it, Alice Cooper. He is in the Enter Sadman Hall of Fame now with Billion Dollar Babies. Where he is in that league table of excellence, we'll find out later. Um, but we must move on 
because the next album we're going to do is from 1990, I think, and it's this crazy left field choice that you can explain, Mother Love Bone and Apple. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I was quite surprised to find when I started doing some research about this album that everyone was calling it a grunge album. And I was going, no, it's not a grunge album. It can't be a grunge album because I would never, never, I tell you, have chosen a grunge album. And I don't think I have. I think this is a, an album that transitions from the 80s to the 90s. So you can hear a bit of what's to come. I think it's a tragic album because I think if Andy Wood, the vocalist, had, had survived and they'd gone on and made other albums, I wonder whether grunge would have taken a different direction. Question mark, we'll never know, and probably not worth debating. Um, this, for me, is the point at which the hair metal attack of the late 80s and grunge, this is the bridge between those two things. So... For, I describe this as a, a combination of the cult meets Alice in Chains meets Led Zeppelin. And if grunge had gone in this direction, I would have been absolutely on board with it. Because I think the 10 songs, uh, sorry, 13 songs on Apple are by and large really good. Hooky, trippy. Um, glam metal. I mean, there's some glam metal in there as well. It's the kind of... It, this is the album that I think Faster Pussycat were trying to make, actually. Um, and I think if they'd made that, that would have been massive too. But it is an album that is absolutely kind of saturated in tragedy, really. Andy Woods, who's this very iconic figure around Seattle um, at the time, which was back in sort of the mid-'80s or the early-'80s, he's in a, ba a band called Malfunction. I'm not even going to try and spell it because um, it's not spelt as you imagine. Um, they are more grungy, actually, having gone back and listened to it. They're more grungy than uh, Mother Love Bone and probably sort of seven or eight years ahead of grunge. Like, I suppose, so many kids who get caught up in the rock music scene, Andy Wood uh, gets seduced into this world of drugs. He becomes a junkie. He's an absolute junkie by the age of 19. His brother says that he's got track marks going up and down his arm. Mother Love Bone, the band that you could argue invented Pearl Jam because, you know, the two members of the band, um, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, go off and uh, form via Temple of the Dog um, Pearl Jam. And the rest is kind of history. Um, before that happens, Mother Love Bone sign a seven album deal, seven album deal to Polydor based on one EP called Shine. And then four months before the album, before this full album is released, uh, Andy Wood tragically dies. He goes off into downtown Seattle, scores some heroin, overdoses, and is found by his girlfriend the following morning. And that is that. And that is the end of Mother Love Bone. The remaining members go off um, with a very little known Eddie Vedder. Um, and form Temple of the Dog, and then that morphs into Pearl Jam, as I say. So this is Mother Love Bone. Um, it was released on July the 19th, 1990. It's a fucking long album, but it doesn't feel like it to me. It's 58 minutes, there or thereabouts, released on the Stardog Mercury label, and recorded at the plant in Sausalito in California, and then they brought it back to London Bridge Studios in Seattle, Washington, during the winter of 1989 to finish it off and mix it. Re produced by 
Bruce Calder, Terry Date, Mark Dernley, and Terry Date may be known to you gentlemen as a one-time producer of Dream Theatre, among many others. So, you know, fairly uh, accomplished uh, producer. And also the band itself gets a production credit. The lineup, Andrew Wood on lead vocals and piano, Bruce Fairweather lead guitar, Stone Gossard on rhythm, Jeff Amant on bass, and Greg Gilmore on drums. Uh, didn't chart on the Billboard 200 by the time it came out. Um, I think their star had kind of fallen a bit from the uh, shiny EP that had been released a couple of years before that. Got to number 34 in the Billboard. Heat Seekers chart, no idea how many it sold, not very, not very many. So I really enjoyed it. I think it's, I think it's a, a fantastic piece of work in this space. It's not perfect, there's some low moments on it. But for somebody who doesn't like grunge, I thought it was rather spiffing. stuff you you've read and it's not a grunge album it's just not a grunge album you know everyone's saying yeah they're pioneers of grunge greatest band grunge never quite got together behind what i'm getting is that th this is the cocktail i've got it's late 80s glam in short it's it's vain it's enough's enough it's babylon ad it's fused with dirt under the fingernails rock like guns and roses and of course loads of the cult i don't quite get the zeppelin thing um, but I quite enjoy it for all of that, um, and because of that, and also uh, Guns N' Roses, I just look at the fucking album cover, you know, the picture with the band name written bold on the side, on the vertical. I mean, it's Appetite for Destruction, no? So, to my mind, they were almost branded because of where they hail from. You're from Seattle, you're scooped up, you're just dumped into the grunge vat, aren't you? You know, maybe Mother Lovebone with another shot of this would have truly conformed, like all their sort of, you know, Washington stable mates. But for me, what I'm getting, as I say, is late 80s glam, early 90s punk glam with some occasional lazy stoner hints. That second track, Star Dog Champion, could have been written by Dave Windorf. You know, it's that trippy. 
Paul Lee's retrospectives have hailed Mother Love Bone as the you know the best band grunge never had. Um, and like you, if this had been the direction of travel um, for grunge, I'd, I'd have hailed the cab and, and, and tailed it um, long into the night. Um, but th that's because th this isn't grunge's lost gem. You know, this, this, that's complete bollocks. This is derivative glam done pretty well, which is why I quite like it. Richard? Uh, you two and your grunge, it's funny, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you, 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 got, you forget that this thing's a spectrum, not buckets. <laughs> no, um, no, uh, and, no, 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 it's and, buckets. Oh, here we go, here we go. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, yeah, this is this is the in that spectrum. This is the sort of I mean, it's the bits of it, almost indie alternative end. It's a bit of as you say, it's, there's a glam end to. Um, I mean, immediately one of first impressions of it was the I mean, super heavy influences of, of things like the cult. Uh, you know, I I, I was thinking, you know, this this was cult light or diet cult. As I, <laughs> um, um, but you know, when I realised it was, you know. Um, Gossard and Ament, then I, I did start to hear some uh, bits of Pearl Jam. There are some, just some of the motifs, the way they play the guitars, the phrasing. You can see, okay, well, I can hear bits of that in uh, on in tracks on on ten. Um, and I think you know, if you think about some of the the other, you know, we've done um, Stone Temple Pilots, which I know is a bit of a mixed album, but again, think about some of the groovy, glamier things on on there. So. I th yeah, I think you know that they're they're in that end or that part of our rock spectrum. I feel, but I think yeah, that it is it is sufficiently different. I mean, I, I can hear some bits of Led Zeppelin here, certainly the glam stuff. Yeah, it would have been fascinating to see where they ended up, but then if they'd continued, we wouldn't have Pearl Jam, would we? Um, but yeah, great choice. It's been a really really good listen, uh, and it is a shame. It is a shame that they um, managed to do one album. I watched the comeback when they did a sort of comeback concert. That's, uh, you can find a recording on on YouTube, and, and uh, you know, the surviving members. There's still obviously a hell of a lot of affection for for each other, uh, as there was between all these bands on the scene. So yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, so the album kicks off with this is Shangri La. Um, it's got a fantastic hook line, and uh, yeah, I can hear. Loads of bands from the late 80s doing this. Absolutely gets inside your head and stays there. It's got a fantastic guitar riff and line that just wraps itself around itself. And just, I don't know, something really interesting going on. Can't put my finger on what it is. But um, Andy Wood's um, vocal on this reminds me very much of Davey Vane. Um, I love this track. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's got a fantastic groove, is not it? It's, it's immense. It's an immense bass line throughout this album. It's fantastic, and uh, particularly on, on on this track. And yeah, I'm gonna when I listened to the solo, that 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 wah wah solo, I thought, well, that could be Gossard. Throughout this album, I'm getting echoes of Ian Asprey in uh, in his vocal delivery as well. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, massively echo that Asprey comment. Um, just a great slice of glam rock, where it should have been going in the early '90s. You know, because this is a throwback almost to the mid '80s. Wood's voice sells it, absolutely, but the band is on point. It's a great song. It's a great opening. And the second track up, wow, you, you said, Stephen, did you say it was a, like a almost a stoner mm. kind of song? And um, I kind of get that, but it's kind of accessible commercial stoner rock, isn't it? It's not, we're not talking Caius here, or maybe we are, I don't know. 
it, it's very it's also very groovy it's not as groovy as this is shangri-la but there is something quite upbeat about it so i can't understand what you're saying but i don't feel oppressed in the same way that i do <laughs> by bands <laughs> like Paris. here we go here we go here we go spectrum what? spectrum no see no i don't think it is i don't i honestly don't think it's a it's a spectrum i think grunge is grunge is grunge there's no spectrum in grunge it is just relentlessly unremittingly depressing um, and and this isn't and that's why i that's why I, I i like this i there is not a single grunge album that you could play me that i would listen to more than once that I've heard. So it's not a spectrum to me, it's a bucket. <laughs> it's not, no, it's not chaos, but there's, um, there are echoes of things like Queens of the Stone Age in here, as well as Steve says of Monster Magnet. I think this is great. This is a step up. It's really catchy. I love the swaying, slow pace of it. Uh, the little quiet breaks, it gets going again. Fantastic groove. Um, yeah, it's one of the songs of the album for me. Yeah, me too. It's um, there's parts of this track I'm getting. Joy Division does tool with Monster Magnet. I mean, what's not to like about that kind of cocktail? Um, it's a triumph. It's a phenomenal piece of work. Belter, proper thunderous riff. I love that brilliant kind of gang choral at the end. Just powers out with a really trippy guitar line from Fairweather. Track of the album. Okay, so track three is um, Holy Roller. And it kind of continues in the same vein, doesn't it? I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to talk about grunge anymore because otherwise we're going to end up talking about buckets and fucking spectrums again. I, I like this. I think this takes the album on another step. This is really quite groovy. It's got a nice guitar line through it, and Woods' vocals again lift it kind of exponentially. I think. Yeah, just groovy, groovy. That's the word. It's exactly what this is. Good song, nice song. Yeah, I like the wah wah guitar. Great bass line again. Uh, not so keen on the break in the middle. Um, so it's a step down from uh, the stuff from Star Dog Champion for me, but no, good track, good third track. Okay, so track four is Bone China, uh, which is sort of a slow brooding track. Uh, this is the sort of stuff, as far as I can tell from the research that I've done, this is the sort of thing that Stone Gossard and Jeff Amon were kind of almost made a trademark of in their work with Pearl Jam, sort of took this stuff on and and evolved it and developed it. Yeah, um, I, I like this. It, uh, oddly enough, it's another song about heroin addiction, mm -hmm. um, which is a recurring theme on this album. It's quite sort of languid and reflective and introspective, isn't it? But um, again, we've I said that I found um, some of the stuff on Billion Dollar Babies hypnotic. I find this hypnotic as well. <laughs> I quite like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Um... That the guitar picking, it's Pearl Jam's trademark. I think this is great. Moody, atmospheric. Well, even while, even though it's slow, it's still got a real groove to it. Yeah, there's two or three examples on this album, aren't there, of this sort of stuff. I, I, I love it. I think also it's really interesting, isn't it? In a world where, you know, the sun was becoming greater than the past, you were getting all these more and more sort of faceless, nameless bands. It's lovely to be able to wallow in the beauty of an old school proper rock star. You know, it would. He's a kind of Freddy figure, isn't he? Or a Mark Bolan or a Steven Tyler, you know. A, a fucking show-off. Someone who knows he's the undisputed star of, the, of this show. I think he's... It's just a crying shame, isn't it? Great front man. Really great front man. Great voice. Perfect for this song. 
what I really like about this album is that it feels authentic. There doesn't feel it doesn't feel like there's anything in here that's an, a, a construct or a or an art mm. an artifice. That it, it's all this bloke just pouring his heart out mm. onto the page, isn't it? And you know, and that kind of ramps up the tragedy and all the rest of it as yeah. well, which is you know, I suppose part of the point. Um, but then we get to come bite the apple, um, which is more of a straight up rocker. Personally, I don't like this as much as the four that have gone before it, but equally, I don't dislike it. You know, there are lots of albums that have tracks on them where you go, oh, yeah, I forgot that was on there. And this is this is one of those for me, really. <laughs> um, but, yeah, perfectly solid track. Yeah, I, I got real. It was one where I did get echoes of uh, things like Stone Temple Pilots. Um, and the Wah Wah solo is so Pearl Jam. But then we get to Stargazer. Well, I mean, there's a lovely sort of, almost tinkly ro- rainbow intro to it, which is just sort of gorgeous, I think. Um, and this is where I think they do end up sounding like Led Zeppelin. You can't really listen to wood on this and not be getting a big dose of Robert Plant. It's, a, it's almost like he's doing an impersonation of it. But I really like this. I think it's, it's again, it's, it's languid, isn't it? it? It's sort of, it's mellow and just sort of rolls on and... Yeah, um, oddly enough, um, it's about heroin. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to that. Black Crows, I'm getting echoes of the Black Black Crows on this one. Almost primal scream kind of mood to it as well, isn't there? Uh, it's been a real grower, this one. Yeah, it's chilled out, uplifting. Bit of mandolin. Can't go wrong with a bit of mandolin, can you? I've, I've got a kind of fusion of Cinderella and the cult. Kind of starts off as quite ploddy, but um, I like it. It's grown on me as well. So then the next uh, track, track seven, uh, Heart Shine. I think this is this is another one with a really hooky chorus, quite very upbeat song. Just think is is really kind of um, well, very groovy. Um, I don't know whether this one is about heroin. Uh, I haven't looked at that, <laughs> but for me, this is the sort of kind of around this point the album starts to just drop off a bit. Never gets. You know, so bad that you well, it might do for Steve. No, for me, it didn't get so bad that I wanted to stop. But I think we have heard the best of the album now. Yeah, not bad. This is about the time I'm tiring of it a little bit. I mean, this is side. This this is track one, side two, isn't it? On a on a vinyl, on a vinyl yeah. version. And and I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't have flipped this. I've just given myself a little break. Track eight or track two, side two, depending on whether you got vinyl or. CD is Captain High Top. Um, again, another very funky little number. Um, but like you, Steve, I've, I've now heard this a couple of times already, and it's not as good the second time around, a bit like a Chinese meal, really. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly competent. Bass work's really good, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm getting a bit tired now. Yeah, I'm going massive Ian Asprey echoes in the voice again. I quite like the shuffle chorus in this. Verse is okay. But yeah, it's um, it is becoming a little savvy. Track nine. This is "Man of Golden Words," which includes the lyrics "Temple of the Dog," which is where the tribute band, because Temple of the Dog was a tribute band or tribute to Andy Wood posthumously. Um, "Man of Golden Words." It's got a sort of a, an Elton John opening. I thought it's got that sort of piano kind of thing going on in it. Um, I don't know. Um, it's a stoner ballad, apparently, <laughs> um, and one of the highlights of the album, but not for me. 
I'm getting uh, in search of the peace of mind by the Scorpions at the start of this, but that's about it. Doesn't really go anywhere. That's interesting. Yeah, some nice piano lines through. I think as it as it goes on, it it sort of starts to resemble the sort of song that Gossard and Ament might one day turn into something like Black. There's a drawl to it I quite like as it sort of builds and builds. I don't mind it. It's it's a little bit different. It's it, it sort of ticks the ticks the variety box that I was you know craving. No, I'll give it that. Well, if you like that, how about another grooving rocker? Um, <laughs> because we haven't heard enough of them yet. Yeah. Um, Track 10, Capricorn Sister. Um, even the title makes you think about the cult, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, Firewoman. Um, and it's kind of the song that the cult would quite happily put on one of their albums, I would think. You know, either Sonic Temple or maybe Electric. I can hear it on either one of those. It's fine. Um, yeah, as a, it, it's quite a nice little kind of upbeat moment and it's a bit more interesting than either Heart Shine or Captain High Top. <sighs> Nothing to say. <laughs> Steve's had it. Steve's had enough. Yeah. Um, only another three to go, my friend. <laughs> only another three to go. Well, luckily uh, I like two of them, so that's all right. That's good. Is Gentle Groove one of them? Steve? It is. It is. Yeah. Talk to us about Gentle Groove. Well, also written by Wood as well and, and he, he tends to pen some of these sort of more broody thoughtful sort of maudlin numbers and if anyone would think it's a sort of vision into his mind at the time who knows um <laughs> but it's a really touching number i think like like man of golden worlds um full of little off notes and flats and minor key changes little subtle things that just enough to add something extra create a really nice soundscape could be quite dull but it's not it's written really nicely it's a good song is it it's yeah it's okay it's all right. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, it's um, Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, I quite like the piano motif in it. I like the bass line. So, yeah, again, for me, with Capricorn Sister, one of the higher points on this second side. Okay, so we get to the penultimate track on the album, which is Mr. Danny Boy. Um, one of the least played uh, on Spotify on this album. Um, which probably reflects the fact that it's not really particularly inspiring. I find it quite an insipid track. I mean, it's quite upbeat, I suppose. Um, a lot more, you know, there's another load of funk. I mean, there is a, there's, there's kind of, the band that we haven't really talked about when we talk about this album is the Electric Boys, who did, was it them that did Funkadelic Carpet Ride or whatever it was? Um, so there's a lot of that going on. And this is the kind of time that, you know, funk metal was around and we've got, quite a lot of that going on here yeah it's, i mean another nice shuffle again they use this sort of rhythm quite a lot in pearl jam but apart from that not massively memorable for me and presumably not massively memorable for you steve i'm assuming that this is the not one of the two of the last three that you like fast forward mate fast forward fast forward uh so we do fast forward to the last track on the album which is actually eddie vedder's favorites Mother Love Bone track, and one that he, uh, without naming it, said there was one track that Andrew Wood had written that he would uh, absolutely love to sing uh, in front of an audience one day. And sure enough, Crown of Thorns made it into a uh, into the Pearl Jam live show for a, a little while, not very long, but a little while, became a staple of their live set for, I think, one tour. Uh, Crown of Thorns is it. It's been played seven and a half million times 
on Spotify and is widely regarded as the best track on this album and the one that defines Mother Love Bone. I personally don't see what all the fuss is about, but um, it's not so I don't like it, um, but it has been hyped beyond belief as a sort of a, a crowning, excuse the pun, and defining moment in the Mother Love Bone story. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I wouldn't know enough, I guess, to judge that. It's certainly not my favourite track on the album. The, the reason is, is because of introspection is an absolute key element of, of this music. Um, and therefore, the fans of this sort of shite will like that kind of maudlin, you know, sat in your bedroom, just feeling very sorry for yourself, misery that comes with it. I really like this song. I do like it. Um, <laughs> in your bedroom? Yeah, I do. I do like it. I think there's a lot of power in this. I think it's a very powerful song. Okay, so what does a fan of this kind of shit think about it? <laughs> um, of this particular part of the spectrum, it's uh, not bad, yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it rewards those who persevere to the end of the album, doesn't yes. it? Because it, it, it is a good finish. Yeah, It's moody, it's soulful, again, still a good rhythm. And you absolutely can hear the Pearl Jam foundations in this song. Absolutely. There you go. That is um, that is Mother Love Bone. It's my one flirtation with the grunge spectrum of what we listen to. <laughs> um, but we must do highs and lows. Um, so, Steve, let's start with you. Um, yeah, it's quite a few contenders for the lows. Captain High Top, probably. Um, and I do, I love the first two tracks. I think they're the best things on it. And um, Star Dog Champion, just pips. This is Shangri-La. Okay. Richard? Mr. Danny Boyle may be my golden words. Um, don't do that much for me. And uh, my high, yeah, I'm with Stephen Star, Dog Champion. Okay, so I, I'm Mr. Danny Boyle is the low. And um, I, I can't get beyond this is Shangri-La. So there you go. Another one into the Hall of Fame. In fact, the 200th album into the Hall of Fame as we stand. Um, okay, well, it's time to move on, and we move on one year, just one year, and it's Marillion. Opening album sleeve notes. Um, so we're talking here about the second album of Steve Hogarth era Marillion, uh, followed uh, season's end, uh, and uh, the album in question it says Holidays in Eden. Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear what you two think, because... Of the many bands who've had changes in personnel and whatever, it, it's weird, but I'm able with Marillion to think of them as two different bands. And I don't really compare the two. I like my fish stuff and I like my Hogarth stuff. You know, it's quite funny that, you know, he's even now I think he's got a T-shirt with something like the New Boy or something like that on it. You know, if, even though he's been with the band now for 30 years. But and obviously they've released way way more albums than they than they ever did uh, with Fish. But that I guess tells you about a lot about Fish and his personality and size. Um, yeah, so this was the first album with Hogarth that they wrote from the beginning. Uh, season then was already mostly written uh, by the time Steve Hogarth joined the band. Uh, so this one they really did write as a new five piece um they wrote it and recorded it through 1991 and it was released on the 24th of june recorded at hook end recording studios in oxfordshire and westside studios in london a little over 48 minutes in length 
And interestingly, they uh, called in a guy called Christopher Neal uh, to, uh, to produce this album. Uh, he hasn't got much of a rock pedigree as, uh, as Christopher Neal. I mean, he's, he's worked with uh, likes of Aha, Amazuli, Bonnie Tyler, Celine Dion, Cher, Dollar, Jennifer Rush, uh, Leo Sayer. And, and I suppose then as a result, it's not surprising that this is seen as Marillion's poppiest ever album. Uh, Chart-wise, it did okay, uh, reached number seven in the UK, and it's got uh, ten tracks, uh, four on side one and six on side two, uh, pretty much written by the whole band, a couple of variations, but, but, but they say they wrote most of this together. For me, I, I love it. Um, it's um, it's been good to go back to it, uh, and it's uh, it's uh, one of my favourites of, of Hogarth era Marillion. Um, Say so a lot of Marillion fans don't like it because it's far too poppy and uh, and commercial. Uh, but fascinated, what you guys think? Oh, God, I, I knew you'd love it. Now that's what I call Marillion. No, that's, that's, that's where I am. I mean, is this not released on KTEL rather than EMI? I'm only guessing. Um, I tell you what, I'm being flippant, obviously. There's some nice, tidy songs on here, one or two more than decent ones, but this is basically a once-proud prog band doing something they really shouldn't have done, um, and it's no surprise to anyone they didn't do it again. It's not dislikable because of the musicianship, which I adore, and because Steve Hogarth's voice, which is a wonderful instrument in itself, and if you're happy sitting in an armchair listening to some fairly tame but melodic pop music washing over you, then then this hits the mark. And this isn't a fish thing, by the way. I love fish to bits. Um, the, the band were you know, inevitably going to be very different once it's gone. The positives um, from this very unmarillion album is that the tunes are very good. Hogarth lacks fishes verboseness but that's fine because he's also a better singer a different singer but a better singer um certainly where for where the band are at this point both enormously emotive and I, and I like them both like you i like them both i can see what you see in them as two separate bands richard i love you to bits but this is just too tame for me <laughs> mark 
Oh, the Compromise album. Is it <laughs> album number six or is it the difficult second album or the difficult first album? I don't know. Um, I, to be honest, I lost interest in Marillion after Script for a Jester's Tear. And, and it's only because of this podcast that I've kind of gone, well, that was a bit silly because Fugazi <laughs> was brilliant. Um, and I've since gone and listened to Misplaced Childhood and Clutching at Straws, and they're both brilliant as well. Um, but I'm, I've ne- I had never bothered with Steve Hogarth, Marillion. Not for any other reason than I hadn't bothered with Marillion after Script for a Justice Tear, which I loved, by the way. Um, my issue, I think my issue with this album is I liked you played it to me, Richard, when back in the mid '90s, and I really liked it then. And I don't like it as much now, if I'm being honest. I think I have the same issues with it that Steve has. The biggest issue for me is they're not a prog band on this. And one of the things about that I loved about Meridian, for somebody who doesn't much like prog, is that they were a proper prog band, but with a, a sort of an accessible door into them you know Mm. but all of the first four albums now this is accessible this is utterly commercial this by the band's own admission emi turned around and went boys we need to have a big hit album because you haven't you know season's end although it did all right it wasn't a hit album and the and the first four were and emi wanted them back on commercial tracks so this feels like a band writing pop songs to please a record company Steve Hogarth can sing anything. He's got a fantastic singing voice, but I don't like him. I don't like his voice. And that's not, that's a me thing. That's not a Steve Hogarth thing. There's something about his voice that feels really derivative. It's like I've heard that kind of voice in the 90s and beyond too much. And there's too much of this album that feels like it should be on Acton Baby or The Joshua Tree. And I don't know, it's just not Meridian for me. They certainly, with their next album, Brave, went back to sort of concept and complexity yeah. and then everything else. Oh, they probably they probably agreed with you. But anyway, let's give this one a listen, shall we? Uh, ten tracks. And yeah, it starts with Splintering Heart. So fading in on these sort of moody synths. I'm not sure if there's a, some sort of uh, synthesized bass guitar there as well. Mark will be struggling from the beginning because essentially <laughs> this is just a bed for the introduction of Hogarth's voice, Full Pelt. As a song, it builds and builds with some drum, as- drum accents and then breaks out into a proper, proper uh, Marillion rhythm and then a fairly classic Steve Rothery solo. Uh, back and forth between sort of quiet and loud before and was, I suppose, I-, I felt like a bit of a Pink Floyd ending. Um, <laughs> and I, I, still, I, I still think it's a great opener. still really like it. Yeah, me too. I've got it down as a Pink Floyd start as well. I think the whole thing's quite Floyd-esque. Um, it's a proper brooding piece of work. This would this would satisfy all generations and ages and, and um, hues of Marillion fan, I would have thought. Mesmerising flow to it. I like this. Yeah, I, I get all of those references to Pink Floyd. This is probably about as, well, with maybe one other exception, this is probably about as Marillion as... They get on the album, um, and so yeah, this is this is good. Okay, let's move on. Uh, cover my eyes. Pain and heaven is uh, track two, and yeah, okay. So this is proper poppy. <laughs> I don't care. I love it. It's upbeat. <laughs> it's uplifting. Look, this is this is Marillion do AOR. For, I've always loved it. 
It's my guilty pleasure, Richard. Don't apologise. Oh. I love it. It's ridiculous. It's almost it's almost you two-ish. I love this song, and I shouldn't. And I know I shouldn't. And I and I and I condemn myself. <laughs> and I always have I just, done. I just don't know why they brought the Edge and Bono in to do it. It's no, it, no, no, no. Just no. All levels of no. <laughs> all levels of no. Oh God, no. <laughs> just no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where Mark is, what yeah. he's listening to. It's not this one. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, track three is uh, a story. A story about a girl going to a party. Um, a quiet piano-based start. Again, very atmospheric. I think it's a very cleverly constructed song, uh, sort of capturing the mood and the emotion about what this girl is feeling as she approaches it, you know, trepidation, she's unsure, she's amazed, she's excited, she meets someone. Some lovely ly lyrics on it. And and then it, I mean, so it really builds and builds and builds. Uh, and then there's a there's a sudden change to the last couple of minutes where it really sort of rocks to Trevor's bass. Uh, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a lovely song, story in a song. I, I think this is brilliant. Such a clever, it's almost like a work of art, you know. <laughs> it is. It's a perfect follow-up to cover my eyes as well because it's tender, and then it lets you float back down, and then that yeah, that end, that Rothery solo. Faith No More wouldn't have done that end any better. That funky bass line from Travers, brilliant song. Um, I, I really like this. Whatever happens to that girl at the end, it's not good. It's my suspicion though, <laughs> um, and I think that's why I, I find this quite a dark song. Because mm. I, because I think yeah you know, she she I think you're right, Richard. That it's, it is brilliantly constructed. It's brilliantly told because you've got this kind of quite vulnerable kid, I suppose, turning up to a party, and then she gets kind of presumably seduced away from it, and you never you never know what happens to her. But I'm thinking probably not good. Um, but it might be. It might be good. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it's just another pop song, really, isn't it? It's fine. It's fine. There, there are moments where it gets quite proggy, and I quite like that. Let's move on to the least commercial track on the album. Um, uh, <laughs> track four is uh, is No One Can. Um, and oh, Merillion do a big, big commercial ballad. <laughs> right. I like this. I think it's actually a really beautifully written song, a story, uplifting chorus. This is it's very difficult for me to judge this objectively because it uh, means quite a lot to me uh, personally. So, um, but it is incredibly commercial. It means quite a lot to me as well personally. I still think it's a bit soppy and sappy, <laughs> um, mm. but I love it. Oh yeah, yeah I yeah. do love it. Yes, sorry, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. And um, yeah, it's a pop song, um, and that's just tied us to the Thompson twins. Fuck sake! <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think uh, I've ever skipped it. I don't think I've ever skipped it because, as you say, Richard, it is it's it's beautifully written. It's just it's just it's just a pop song. Yeah, Steve, 4,634,588 people think that's better than you do. Uh, yeah, well, let them think that. All right, well, let's go on to the title track. Um, 
the uh, first track on side two holidays in eden and uh, we get a bit rockier we get a bit rockier um i mean i would say this is not that marillion it's fairly straight ahead probably well there are a couple of tracks here where they get close to a power riff this has got some bits of later genesis i think on it as opposed to early genesis which appeared on the fish marillion album Lots of changes in volume and mood. Um, yeah, I think very well arranged. Uh, I, I I quite like Holidays in Eden. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it. I have to say. I, I, I think it's um, I think it's brilliantly constructed. Mm. Um, but I find, and this is probably me again. I find the time changes through it slightly difficult to deal with. But um, yeah, well constructed, well written, quite clever. Not sure it floats my boat. Um, I tell you what, it reminds me a little bit of um, Fireworks by Blue Oyster Cult off Spectres, which is a song where a couple of the verses are absolute gold, but the rest of the song less so. And I find that with this. Okay. The other thing I was the other thing I was going to say is that um, a singer that I referenced pretty much straight away when I heard Hogarth is Sting. This could sit on Ten Summoners' Tales mm-hmm. or something like that. It absolutely mm-hmm. could. Hogarth's a massive fan of Sting, and I can hear a lot of him. It's certainly in this song and one or two others as well. I, 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 like, I do mm. like this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I get the sting bit. I get the sting bit. Okay, let's move on to, to track six, uh, which is Dry Land, another ballad, another showcase of Hogarth's voice, real soaring vocals, especially in, in the chorus, more sort of classic rothery guitar. But, I mean, it, it is it's very similar to No One Can, isn't it? That, another, another slow ballad. It was brought um, by Hogarth from his previous band, wasn't it? Mm, that's right, yeah. And um, the original's better. Is it? I've not heard it. Yeah, I, I think it. so. I like loads of strings. It's, um, I mean, it's very faithful to, to the original. They haven't done a lot to it, but um, yeah, it doesn't enthuse me. Yeah, and I think if if um, if no one can, uh, didn't have a personal meaning for me, then I'd probably feel exactly the same way because I don't much like this. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, and that's followed with another slow track called uh, "Waiting to Happen." I, I this is I, I like this actually. It's, it's light, it's airy, it's got a very positive you know, step up in the chorus, but a nice big ending to it. Yeah, I, "Waiting to Happen" is a it's a good song for me. Yes, yeah, it's a bit more Marillion. I think I, 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 that's what I quite like about this. I think it is a bit more Marillion, and it, it's a bit more in keeping with kind of where they were yeah four or five years before this came out i don't think meridian needed to stay in the past i don't think they should have i'm not suggesting for a minute that they should have been writing what they were writing up to 1987 but for me on this album too much of what they stood for between 82 and 87 has gone missing gone awol and i you know but this this kind of seems to be a, a fairly useful and acceptable and accessible compromise between the two bands mm. this song's just a bit slushy but it does mm-hmm. but, it, it, but it, it's i like the way it picks up but dangerously close to slushy <laughs> all right well the track eight then track eight is um well a, a bit rockier i don't know what's this merillion do uh, dire straits and for me it's more one-dimensional. It chugs along nicely. It's it's acceptable, but nah, it doesn't do a lot for me this time. See, I like it. See, I like it because I love those kind of D 
dumb mid 80s power rock chart chase i'm getting rough cut malice hurricane through that riff. <laughs> I, love, I love it all <laughs> that's where i am with that riff i think it's brilliant and then in typical Marillion style, Rothery then sort of Marillions it a bit with his guitar solo at the end, which completely alters the mood. And what starts off as a sort of car top down rocker morphs into something a bit more mellow. But it's, um, I like it. Yeah, so we come to the last two tracks. They kind of blend into one, really. So that's uh, Rake's Progress and A Hundred Nights. Uh, so another slower song to finish. A sort of classic Marillion tempo. Um, but but I, I feel it, it, you know, whilst it's got those some of those classic Marillion elements, for me it gets a little lost. Well, I'm a little bit sort of fed up with the album anyway by now, but I, I, this is okay um, in as much as it ticks a few prog boxes and you can hear, as you say, those sort of Marillion telltale sounds. Um, you know, some lots of different things going on, one or two nice, but ever so melancholy, but you mm. know, with a bit of big screaming guitar occasionally in there. Yeah. Um, which at least gives it a bit of an element of variety. I think the the album is bookended really nicely um, with the, the first and this last track, and um, it's just some of the cheese in the sandwich that gives me indigestion. <laughs> um, I don't mind this. Actually, mm. I think it's quite a good en ending for the album. I quite like the sort of the, the pace changes in it, and, yeah, I think it's quite a nice sort of – it's not – it's not quite epic, but it's it's a it's a substantial slice of some things in the album. With so yeah, I'm I'm all for this. Okay, all right, very good. All right, so better have some highs and lows then. Let's go first, Mark. Uh, okay, so um, well, the low cover my eyes, fuck's sake, um, and the high, uh, the party maybe um splintering let's go for splintering heart because i think it's that that was a really good kind of opening statement i think it's a really good statement track okay steve okay uh waiting to happen is, is my low and i don't care what anyone thinks of me um my conscience is clear cover my eyes yeah and uh mark's got his head in his hands and quite rightly because uh, cover my eyes gets my high vote as well uh and uh, this town uh we'll get my low so there we are so that's holidays in eden uh, our third album of this episode 67 and our 201st album uh that now will make its way into our hall of fame but only with the other two that we've reviewed tonight once we have scored them reviews complete initializing rating process okay so the first of the three albums um on this was my life episode 67 um alice cooper's billion dollar babies from 1973 and we scored it thus mark liked it most gave it seven richard 6.45 me the chooser of it gave it only 6.1 for an overall score of 6.51667 um mark mother love bone apple uh yeah so that did all right um steve you gave it a 6.730 richard liked it um the next most 6.96 and i liked it most of all 7.4 give or take to give an average of uh, over an overall average album score of 7.02 richard meridian or not meridian <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've got to we've got diet cult to diet meridian tonight yes. yeah. Holidays in Eden, so not too bad, actually. 
7.27 from Steve, a 6.75 from Mark, and a 7.39 from me. And that gave it an overall of 7.14. So we've certainly not got any top 10 or even top 100 now botherers, I don't think, in, uh, in these three albums. But let's see precisely where they have slotted in to our now 201 strong Hall of Fame. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place, opening the Hall of Fame. All right, here we are. The three albums, as uh, Richard rightly predicted, don't manage to get out of the bottom 100 now because we've got a top 100 and a bottom 100, with Billion Dollar Babies coming in at number 186. We have to go up another 26 places to 160 to find Mother Love Bone, the inventors of Pearl Jam. And most popular uh, album in this show was Holidays Needed by Marillion. That came in at 146, putting them between, well, interestingly, below Praying Mantis and <laughs> above The Scorpions. That's where those three have ended up. Let's just recap the top 10 uh, for you. If you haven't been over to the website to have a look, and it's worth going over and checking us out at entersadman.co.uk. Um, so in order, 10 upwards, at 10, Lightning to the Nation's Diamond Head, 9, The Number of the Beast, Iron Maiden, 8, The Real Thing, Faith No More, 7 is Black Tiger from Y&T, 6, Metallica's Metallica, or The Black Album, if you prefer, uh, 1984 by Van Halen comes in at five. Deep Purple's Machine Head is at four. Led Zeppelin, who led the pack for a long, long time, right up until episode 42, are at number three with their volume four. And then the top two, Metallica's Ride the Lightning at two and ACDC back in black at number one, perhaps predictably. It does top a lot of these charts, although ours, as we keep saying, is somewhat different. Um, the bottom, well, let's do the bottom five. Uh, 197 Fragile by Yes, 198 Rock Until You Drop by Raven. Then we're followed by Gorky Park, Gorky Park, Destroying the Machines, Earth Crisis, which I didn't think would get beaten to the bottom spot <laughs> at all, um, but actually did, and not very many episodes afterwards. Um, by Live at the Hammersmith Odeon, which we looked at at the last episode, by Nuclear Assault. So there you go. That is the Hall of Fame. Um, so we've got to work out, well, we've got to reveal, I guess, what we're doing on the next episode. Um, so Tico Torres' Tombola of Topics and Themes. Uh, the last time we were here spat out white as the theme, the colour white. What, what did you two think about the theme? What did you consider and what did you come up with? I kind of figured that someone would come up with white snake, so I wasn't going to. Um, so I did have a look at. I had a look at a couple of different things. I had a, a band called White Witch from Florida in the early seventies. Um, another one called White Wolf from Canada in the mid eighties. Shite album cover. Looked like Dokken, nineteen eighty four. So pretty much ticked all boxes. Um, but then I played it. So <laughs> I thought bollocks to this. I'm more than happy spending another week. Um, in earshot of Dennis Churchill Dries, so I've chosen White Sisters' debut album. Their eponymously titled debut from 1984. We've done their second album, Fashion by Passion, um, a while mm -hmm. back now. Doing it the wrong way around, but no matter. White Sister it is, for the last time, because they needed two albums. Yeah, um, but... and you, 
you introduce fashion by passion by saying this is the only one we'll do on the pod and yeah here we are <laughs> who knew who knew our weekend i need some good music i've just i've fucking had two weeks of nuclear assault and alice cooper i need something just to sort of you know calm <laughs> richard yeah well i i, I looked um like steve at uh at white witch i i i actually thought the white wolf wasn't too bad um the standing alone album which yeah. has got a ridiculous cover um i've chosen uh the uh, first album i think it is by white lion yeah their debut is fight to survive so i've gone for anthrax's the sound of white noise which i didn't like when it first came out but which i quite like now I don't remember being utterly smitten with it either. So that's fascinating. I look mm. forward to I look forward to giving that another blast. Yeah, there you Very go. Very good. Very so good. that's what we'll be back with the next time we are here. Um, so I hope you had a, a enjoyable time in our company. We've had an enjoyable time in yours talking about well buckets and spectrums um, and <laughs> whether whether bands are actually bands or impersonating bands that they used to be or anyway. Uh, we've had a good time. Thanks, your company. We'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.